Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 23 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 7th of July. And Leon, this week we're talking to Alex Morcos. That's right. Alex Morcos is the director of Alaron Security in Sydney, and he's going to be talking to us all about the implications of the new mandatory data breach notification law for Australia. Should be very interesting. And then we've also got an interesting bit of futurology from Nicholas Gurren. Yes, on uh, how to select leaders. Yeah, it's a bit of a cute angle this time. If you look at the Australian Parliament, you wonder what happened. Indeed. So, But it's certainly well worth listening to. It's a very interesting um, bit of stats that he has. Well, yes, and it sort of actually goes to uh, not only politically, but uh, how councils could select people and how uh, organisations can select leaders. It's it's interesting. Yeah, interesting. Instead of being a bit sort of, you know, looking at the guy and saying he's got a nice suit, you look at it, actually my, how good he might be. Anyway, so let's listen to Alex Morcos. Alex Morcos is the chief executive of a company called Alarom, which is a specialist in a part of the data security business and uh, personal identities. Uh, Alex, there's a new government law covering notifications of privacy breaches. How onerous is that for companies? It all depends on the organisation and where they are in terms of the way they manage their IT and the way they manage the data that they collect. If they've got a general holistic approach to protecting their data and their systems, it should not add too much significant overhead to them. So this includes everything from the loyalty card that you uh, get from the retailer through to uh, big data centres and uh, big data. Absolutely. The um, loyalty cards are a pot of gold these days, not only to the people collecting the information, but uh, the fear is, I guess, is to also criminal organisations. They're the ones that are, I guess, that are bringing this to the fore and why the government's, I believe, has taken action to uh, ensure we are all doing the right thing and on the same page. The big question is how many breaches are there and how big problems? That's a, that's a tough one to answer because every organisation is different. The way they've grown or um, evolved their IT, you know, the actual answer to how big it is a problem for them individually, you know, it's an individual organisation. Um, globally or as a whole, it's we're only at the beginning of it. Um, you know, it's an it's interesting time in the uh, development and evolution of the internet and humanity, I guess, um, at a broader conversation. But, you know, with big data analytics, the tools that are out there, the, you know, machine learning, AI, I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but, you know, there's some fantastic things people are doing. And the people that are collecting the data, they're the good guys, we believe. You know, there's the retail. They're looking about how they can make our lives better, right? Um if they know a certain suburb or a certain sector, you know, prefer a certain flavour of ice cream or a certain type of clothing, they'll focus on them and give them the information they want. Hopefully in the future, we're not bombarded by spam about things we're not interested in. It'll be more tailored to build that kind of profile around suburbs or people that needs a lot of personal information. And that's, I guess, where the, the mandatory breach comes in. It's to, I guess, to help us and ensure that the government is is there supporting the people in terms of giving us more assurance that we are protected. And the big risk, of course, is identity theft, isn't it? That is huge. It's happening all the time. And, you know, 
the simplest form of identity theft, people, their credit cards are stolen. And um, I find it hard to meet people that haven't lost a little bit of money from someone stealing their credit card these days. You know, um, most people have had a phone call during the day saying, um, where are you right now? Are you, you know, are you in your office or at home or are you traveling around the world because, you know, someone's just spent $50 here and $100 there on your credit card. And, you know, we're quite fortunate that our banks support us and, you know, refund us most of the time. So, it's not too concerning at that level. And the other end of the scope is, you know, passports. That's where we have heard of a case in the past of an individual, uh, I believe he was an Australian too, who every country got picked up that, you know, he was on you know, a uh, watch list. <laughs> he just had a horrible holiday, eventually cut short, came back to Australia. That's something we want to obviously avoid. That's not too common as, you know, it's quite significant, but uh, that's the other end of the scale. So the issue is uh, what can companies do to protect themselves uh, from these sorts of breaches? Yeah, my advice would be to, you know, what you do today should be, you know, for the Privacy Act, it shouldn't be any different to the way you run your business in a sense, um, if I can say that. They, they need to take a holistic approach. Firstly, I mean, if time is against them and, you know, everyone's got, uh, is a, you know, doesn't have all the time in the world, all the money in the world, but you really do need to have a holistic approach to the way you protect your data and the way you protect your information. Cybercrime is only going up and, you know, data is the new gold. This is what criminals are really focused on today. So organisations really need to sort of look at and understand where their data is, what their assets are from an organisational perspective, and then plan about how to protect it. You don't need to protect every corner in your organisation from an IT perspective, but you need to understand where your information is and how your staff are using it to provide you the information that you need to, you know, for your business and making sure that it is within the, the right bounds. And of course, the uh, new data regime actually imposes very strict penalties, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. 360000 to an individual, 1.8 to a corporation. Uh, that's just really, to me, just reinforces from the government the message that this is important. Anyone that, you know, plays outside the rules, you know, they will come down. But I mean, what's heartening to me is, you know, surveys done recently show that, you know, the Australian consumers actually trust organisations here in Australia, which is fantastic. Um, and I do know of a number of cases where companies have done the right thing without the mandatory. So prior to the mandatory um, disclosure laws, it was voluntary. And we saw some large organisations, when they did have data breaches, actually contact the consumers they were most concerned about and said, hey, really sorry, this has happened. Here's the advice of what you need to do next, which is fantastic. It's just a fact of life these days that every organisation is going to be breached. So it's preparing for it and, and you know, knowing what to do next when it does happen. What's the level of cost to the Australian economy of this sort of crime? Well, yeah, interesting you say. So those numbers are sometimes hard to get, but I was at a uh, conference a couple of weeks back where it was dated, uh, I believe, $1.2 billion, and that was in 2013-2014. Um, I might have the number a little bit off, but uh, that was yeah, one of the numbers that were bantered around. There's a number of numbers. Some people say $2 billion a year, but it is quite significant. Um, it's not that simple, but, you know, even as high as $15 billion annually. Which is pretty uh, astonishing, really. So the effect of these new rules are to make it mandatory to declare that you've had a breach, but then a company's going to have to be pretty vigilant to know that, isn't it? Correct, correct. The cybersecurity community is an interesting one. I won't say the name of the retailer. For instance, there was a retailer in the US a couple of years back who had a significant breach. They were notified by government and private sector that they were breached before they knew about it. Data is interesting. Companies external can actually identify and will contact our organisations to say, hey, this looks like some information of yours and it's in the dark web. However, we don't want to be dependent on that. So, you know, it does come back to that holistic approach. Yes, you know, it can be quite onerous. 
But, you know, if you're collecting the information, my personal belief is if you're collecting it, you should be responsible with it as well. And if you, you know, plan for uh, protecting it before you start to collect it, then it shouldn't be too expensive for you. Alex Morcos, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Gary. And thank you, Leon, as well. Yeah, pretty interesting, Leon. I think so. I think it's a really interesting law, too, about the mandatory data breach notification. Yeah, and the way things are, you've got to be very, very clear about what's going on, everybody from government right through to individuals. That's right, indeed. Mm. Okay, and Nicholas Gruen's on the go now. Nicholas, uh, one of the problems with selecting leaders is we end up selecting people who want the job and we overlook people who might have a talent but not be that assertive. That means uh, there's an enormous potential leadership pool out there that's not being used. What are your views about that? I think that's a big story. The other part of the story, of course, is that in some cases, not that unusual, people who want the job want it for the wrong reasons. They want it because they want it, they want it about themselves, not about what the job is. So I've been taking a kind of broad interest in the question, if you like, in, a, in the most general sense, in the question of meritocracy. Of course, meritocracy sounds like an obviously good idea. The question is, can we deliver it or to what extent does the attempt to deliver it possibly do us damage? I can think of jobs where the very fact that people want them is a reason to be suspicious. I can think of politicians as an example of that. Psychotherapists uh, is another one. Policemen is another one. Although in each of those cases, some of the people who want the job will be good at it for that reason, but other people will want the job for reasons that indicate that you don't really want them in the job. Um, so is there a way of choosing people while not biasing it towards those people who put their hand up and say, me, me, me? Well, I came upon something that was done in a citizen's uh, jury or a citizen's chamber. You may recall that uh, earlier, uh, well, within the last year, South Australia held a large citizen's jury to ask the question, should South Australia take other countries' nuclear waste? Should it build a nuclear waste facility? Uh, and uh, there were 300 South Australians chosen at random to deliberate on that question. And those people needed a spokesperson. Now, the method that they used to get that spokesperson was very, very interesting. The people running the show said, all right, we need some spokespeople who want to be spokespeople. About 20 stood up and they said, all right, point to a person three chairs away from you on your right. There are about 300 people in this room. They then get the people who've been pointed to, which is really a random selection to stand up. And then they say, come with us. And then they take them into a room and they said, well, we want you to spend the first half hour or hour or however long it was, I don't know. We want you to spend the, that time working on your criteria. By what criteria would we choose the best possible spokespeople? So they deliberated on that and they spent the next period working out who they'd met in this group of 300, who they thought met the criteria. And then as the rest of the group went on with their deliberations about the subject matter of the citizens jury, should Australia start a nuclear waste industry, the people, these 20-odd people, 
filtered out into the room and quietly asked people, would you be prepared to be our spokesperson because we think you'd be good at it? And they then took this entire process, plus the people they'd suggested back to the total group and said, here's what we've done and these are who we've chosen. And the, the total group were very happy with this and they chose these people and they were fantastic apparently. And one of the criteria was not that there be gender balance, but there was gender balance. And uh, there are all sorts of very attractive qualities to this process. And I think um, it would be very interesting to see how we could develop those kinds of techniques in all sorts of circumstances, including in business. You talk about attractive qualities. What other attractive qualities came in in their selection process? One of the criteria they chose was that people shouldn't be too strongly attached to one side or another and that they should understand the position of the other side and be respected by the other side. But it turned out that if you choose people this way, that they ended up choosing some people who did have very strong views one way or the other, but because they had respect for the other side, they were extremely good at what they did and extremely fit for the job. So, you know, how do you choose a boss for other people? Very hard question. And uh, in a business, you know, I'm not even sure how much these things could be directly lifted because, of course, in a business, everyone knows everybody else pretty well, say, in an office. You know, one group of people might pick promotions for another group of people. I'm, I'm not sure how it would work, but this whole idea of not turning one's working life simply into the sort of focus on the next promotion, if you know what I mean, that you try and do your job well and you think that if you do that, that other people will notice and other people will see to it that, you know, if you're the sort of person who would be a good boss, uh, who would be good promoted to some position, other people quietly see to it that that happens. Now, of course, this whole process in South Australia was specifically aligned to the politically loaded question, of course, of uh, nuclear energy. How would you see that being done in a broader context across the country? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, one of the things that it leads me to believe is, I think I've spoken on your program about deliberative democracy or the idea that instead of having elections in politics, we, or not instead of, we, we continue to, for instance, do what we do in politics, but we have another, we dip into another repertoire, which is what we do with juries, which is we put together bodies of people who are chosen at random. I think that that's a very valuable thing to do and for all sorts of reasons that I won't go into now, but it seems to me that in many ways, this is the leadership analogue of that. So you might have a local council or groups. Let's say you've got a large business and you have groups of people who take an interest in particular things, particular aspects of the business. Uh, so that, you know, the marketing department, you might have a review of the marketing department and that might be done by people who are not in the marketing department but who volunteer to do that. And they might need a spokesman or a chairperson. One might want to try to rise above the mass. of A jury has no structure other than the foreman. Everyone is equal. They gather and then they disband. And in a group of 
such people. You might want more of a meritocracy. If you've got a citizen's jury or a body of people chosen at random who've deliberated on something, you might then want to pick a, some kind of an elite of that group who you might go back to. So the group might come up with a report or a recommendation, and then you might say, we'll go back to the best six people in that group of 50 for a review of progress in six months and 12 months' time. And you might then choose those people through a mechanism like this. So that's one way of doing it. But but I, I really do think that this is a very general kind of thing that one might be able to use in all sorts of ways. So it can be used in business, it can be used in uh, government, it can be used on local councils. Yeah, I think it'd be used in schools. I think it'd be great to use it in schools. Uh, schools uh, are often a place where, you know, everyone wants to be the school captain. Lots of kids want promotion, if you like, attention. And I think it's much better if those kinds of people are chosen in this much more deliberative way than just a vote, a vote which will then get you the most self assertive. It will select for self-assertion. And at a time when, you know, in organisations, you've got the individual and you've got the collective and you're not trying to get total sacrifice for the collective, but you are trying to create a balance between people who take the interests of the group to heart and their responsibilities to the group to heart and uh, you also obviously want people to look after their own interests. And it seems to me that the word here is careerism, that the world is much more careerist than it was when I was a kid. Uh, people are uh, somehow robbed of meaning in their work, and the next thing they think about is whether they can get a promotion. And mechanisms for choice like this, I think, would be much more fertile ground for really growing organizational cultures, company cultures, where there's a better balance between self-interest, people using the company, the organization for their own purposes for promotion and so on, which is a completely legitimate thing to do, of course, and serving the community that they're leading. Right. Okay. Well, that would certainly address uh, careerism. And uh, Nicholas Green, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. So what do you think, Leon? How do you read that? Well, I think he's got an interesting idea because often organisations pick people as leaders who are very ambitious, mm. but uh, they, they miss out on others who don't have those sorts of tribal instincts to get ahead, but who are very talented. Yeah, and the tribal instincts often turn into a lot of backstabbing. I mean, you know, working for a big corporation can sometimes be very, very difficult. I think so too, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So now, the news, Liam, what's on your plate this week? Well, Gary, the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept the cash rate at 1.5%. No surprises there. It was forecast by the market. Now, the central bank said it expected the economy to, quote, strengthen gradually with the transition to lower levels of mining investment following the mining investment boom almost complete. And it also noted that it was closely monitoring household debt and the housing market. So that's interesting to watch. Yeah, and household debt's pretty big too. Indeed, indeed. Now, after weeks of negative figures... 
consumer confidence has ticked higher on the back of solid labour market figures, rising 2.4% last week, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. Now that brings the index to its highest point since early April, and it's above the long-run average. Confidence was evidence across all indices. Confidence around both current and future economic conditions rose 3.7% and 3% respectively, and that takes the current economic conditions sub-index to the highest point since mid-March. However, consumers were not that optimistic about future financial conditions. This sub-index rose 0.8% last week. That only partially offset the 1.7% fall the previous week. And the uptick in confidence reflects the solid labour market figures showing 40,000 jobs have been created over the three months to May, and the unemployment rate had dropped to 5.5%. Now, the other interesting piece of news, Gary, was that retail spending posted a strong rise in May, rising a better than expected 0.6%. That was way ahead of market expectations of a 0.2% rise. It also follows a 1% increase in April. And this monthly increase in turnover was spread across most sectors, with the exclusion of department stores, which fell 0.7%, and household goods spending rose 2.2%, and cafe, restaurant and fast food sales were up 0.6%. Also, business-to-business services from the construction and infrastructure investment sectors and improved consumer confidence has resulted in an expansion in the services sector. This saw the Australian Industry Group Australian Performance of Services Index rising 3.3 points to 54.8 in June. That was the fourth consecutive month of expansion for the services sector. Now, any figure above 50 points points to expansion. Anything below is construction. All sectors expanded. But uh, the survey pointed to problems in retail, which contracted 0.8 points to 47.8 points in June. Retail businesses said lack of consumer demand and increased competition from online and offshore sellers were hurting their sales in June. Yeah, people are being very cautious. Their debt's high and the wrangle in Parliament isn't helping confidence either, is it? No, it's not. It's not. It's not. And uh, it, it's, the retail sector is a sector to watch out for. I don't think they're doing it that easy at the moment. No, certainly not with the Fair Work Commission decision that uh, casual workers can apply for permanency. That's right. Indeed. Indeed. That's a big, big decision. Now, the Australian manufacturing sector continued its strong performance with the latest Australian Purchasing Managers Index released by the AI Group coming up in at 55 in June. This is slightly up on the 54.8 level of May. Any figure above 50 indicates expansion. However, there are signs that energy costs might be constraining growth. The data showed good readings on sales, production levels and new orders, but that wasn't enough to keep jobs growing. Employment fell after a solid figure in May. And manufacturers cited rising demand in June with large construction projects buoying activity, including transport, defence, commercial construction, and stronger activity in agriculture, renewable energy, creating other opportunities. But prices are depressed with some markets oversupplied. Now, with the jobs, the labour market, a 2.7% rise in the ANZ Job Advertisements Index for June is pointing to good figures on the Australian labour market. The increase follows a modest 0.4% rise the previous month. There's been solid growth in the job ad numbers, rising 4.9% since the start of 2017. Annual growth has jumped from 7.4% last month to 10.5% in June, which is pretty good, Gary. It is indeed. The other side of that, of course, is that wages growth is still very slow below uh, inflation. That's right. That's right. Now, 
Softer house price rises in Sydney and Melbourne have seen a slowing down of capital gains in house prices across Australian capital cities. According to the latest CoreLogic Home Value Index, there was a 1.8% rise in capital city dwelling prices in June after slipping 1.1% in May. Capital city dwelling values were 0.8% higher across the combined capitals index. Nevertheless, the trend is lower. This was the slowest quarterly rate of growth since December 2015, when the combined capitals index fell by 1.4%. Now, CoreLogic Head of Research, Tim Lawless, said the uptick could partly be explained by seasonality in monthly growth rates. However, he said the easing trend had continued in the second quarter of 2017, and this was mostly attributable to softer conditions across the Sydney housing market, where quarter-on-quarter growth was recorded at 0.8% over the June quarter, down from 5% over the March quarter. Now, Sydney's annual growth rate has slowed to 12.2% over the 12 months ending June 2017. That's down from 18.9% only three months ago. So that's really quite a steep drop, you know, and if you wonder how close we are to a bubble. That's right, indeed. Now, these figures coincided with data released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics showing building approvals fell sharply in May, reversing the increase in April. The ABS figures showed total building approvals fell by 5.6% in May, wiping out the 4.9% increase in April. And that took approvals down. 19.7% on the levels from a year ago, and that was largely driven by a 12.6% fall in approvals of apartments. Yeah, well, there's a glut there already, isn't there? That's right. Now, this is something that will interest you, Gary. Australia has fallen behind in the global rankings for digital readiness. Professional Services Group EY's third edition of the Digital Australia State of a Nation report ranks Australia 18th in a list of 139 countries. That means Australia has slipped two places in the World Economic Forum's Network Readiness Index. Australia might have one of the highest levels of smartphone usage in the world, but other countries have become more technologically advanced, and we are down on affordability. Yep, that's right, and I'm surprised we're not lower than 18th, because the NBN, you know, really, it's more than a disaster. It's just not getting us where we ought to be, and we're going to continue to fall back until we get a decent, fast internet service. Indeed. Now, Fairfax shares crashed nearly 11% to 98 cents after the publisher announced it's going ahead with plans to spin off its real estate section domain after two private equity bidders pulled out after they did due diligence on Fairfax's books. And investors savaged the company after it revealed its earnings would be between $262 million and $266 million, with overall group revenues down 6%. And that compares to earnings before interest tax appreciation amortisation of $283.3 million in 2015-16. Domain revenues are up 10%. Its digital business is up 22%. But Metro Media is down 12%. Australian community media is 11% lower. New Zealand media is down 4%. And Macquarie media is around 5% weaker. And Fairfax said it had not received any offers from the TPG consortium or Hellman and Friedman. And it says it ceased discussions with both parties. And it said it's proceeding with its plan to spin off domain as had already been announced to the market on February the 22nd. It's hard to know whether the newspapers are worth anything at all. Indeed, indeed. Now... South Australia's Liberal opposition says it will vote to block the government's controversial $370 million bank levy. And the decision, 11 
Days after the budget was handed down came after a party room meeting. Amendments, backed by the Nick Xenophon team's John Daly, are going to be put to Parliament to scrap the tax. And the tax won't go through because the Libs will have the numbers in the upper house. And the levy contained the budget aimed to earn the government $370 million in extra revenue over four years, and it was modelled on the federal government's model. Yeah, and people said it was a bad, bad idea. That's right, yeah. Now, Woolworths has outperformed Coles on key measures, according to a UBS survey of suppliers. The survey showed Woolworths was ahead in 26 categories, including in-store execution, pricing strategy, promotional effectiveness and morale for the first time since August 2012. And Coles posted its lowest score since 2011. Now, the survey showed Woolworths scores improved across all the categories, lifting its overall rating to 6.7 out of 10. Now, in the last survey, it scored 6.2. Coles led in one category only, private label. Now, UBS analyst Ben Gilbert says the figures point to a turnaround for Woolworths happening faster than expected, and in a note to clients, he said, the results of our survey, coupled with industry feedback, suggest the Woolworths turnaround will continue and likely at a faster pace than the market is expecting. That's bad news for Coles. It is bad news for Coles, but it's interesting when you go to a Woolies now, the customer service, the smiles, the the greetings you get are quite remarkable. Indeed, indeed. Now, the final piece of news, Gary, the competition regulator has started an informal review of a proposed joint bid by Lachlan Murdoch and Bruce Gordon for broadcaster 10 network holdings now in the hands of receivers. A notice on the Australian Competition Consumer Commission website says the regulator will seek submissions ahead of an August 24th deadline to announce its decision on whether Mr Murdoch's Illyria nominees, television, and Mr Gordon's Birkatu can bid for the company. Now, according to the ACCC, the transaction will see Illyria and Birkatu each directly or indirectly acquiring a 50% of economic and voting interest in the shares in 10 or the assets or shares in the relevant 10 subsidiaries. At this stage, there's been no formal bid for 10, but the potential suitors need clearance from the ACCC. And 10 had notified the market that PPB advisory had been appointed receivers and managers of a stricken network. Now, Mr Gordon and Mr Murdoch have formed a joint venture to restructure 10 and potentially take it private. However, they are currently prevented from buying 10 because of media ownership regulations now before Parliament in August. The REACH rule, which prevents a television network from buying broadcasting to more than 75% of the population, stops Mr Gordon from buying 10. The 2 out of 3 rule, which prevents the ownership of a newspaper, TV network and radio station in the same market, stops Mr Murdoch from buying the network. And that's it for now, Gary. Well done, Leon. And next week we've got a terrific interview with uh, Dr Daniel Richards. He's just published research on which investors are likely to trade more frequently and thereby degrade their returns. Yeah, that's right. It's very interesting. And warning to day traders, I think, the more you buzz around things, the more you're likely to lose. That's right. That's right. So that's it for us for now. We look forward to bring you all the uh, business, finance and economics news next week. In the meantime, take care. And you can tune into us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-R-Z-Z or on Facebook. We'll talk to you next week.